Good afternoon. It's Monday the 13th of February 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me uh, by video link, we've got David Scott, Mark Anderson, uh, and uh, a special guest, uh, Bruce Scott, will be on uh, shortly. But let's get uh, straight on here with the biggest news. This is the top story on the BBC website this morning. Mystery surrounds objects shot down by US military. And uh, this seems to be a theme right across the mainstream press. Nobody really knows what kind of objects are being shot down by the US military at the moment. Uh, we'll come on to the details of it in a second. But this is really, although the BBC didn't mention UFOs specifically, the Daily Mail certainly did. And here's their headline for today. So it's been happening for years. Mark Rubio says UFOs have routinely operated over restricted US airspace, but America has no idea what they are or where they come from as Pentagon refuses to rule out three objects shot down over the weekend are aliens. David, I want to get your thoughts on this, first of all. Are, are we really in the world where the mainstream press is running this type of conspiracy theory? And it's not even August. I thought this was reserved for August, but no, apparently not. Apparently we're running these at, at all 12 months of the year. Uh, yeah, the, the, what they're trying to suggest is somewhere on Earth, there's a little alien sitting, looking very unhappy, and he's writing to himself, he's writing, Dear Diary, came to Earth for a short mini-break. It didn't go well. Uh, the Americans mistook me for a Chinese weather balloon and shot me down. That that seems to be the BBC's take on things. And, um, well, words fail me, Mike. Well, words fail me as well. So let's just uh, look at what's actually been going look at what's actually been going on. Uh, if we uh, bring this one on screen, if we could, Stephanie, please. Uh, so US shoots down an uh, unknown object uh, the size of a small car after it entered uh, airspace near Alaska. This was the headlines over the weekend. It was all over the BBC uh, and so on. So they uh, shot down this uh, unknown flying object um, off the coastline of Alaska just days after it downed a Chinese spy balloon is what the, uh, the, the text says. Uh, it was shot down on the orders of President Biden. Uh, it was flying at an altitude of 40,000 feet. And so it was considered a threat to uh, civilian air, air space and so on. So let's just have a brief look at uh, the briefing from the Pentagon. So first of all, to add to information already provided earlier by the White House, at the direction of the President of the United States, fighter aircraft assigned to U.S. Northern Command successfully took down a high-altitude airborne object off the northern coast of Alaska at 1.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today within U.S. sovereign airspace over U.S. territorial water. On February 9, North American Aerospace Defense Command detected an object on ground radar and further investigated and identified the object using fighter aircraft. The object was flying at an altitude of 40,000 feet and posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. U.S. Northern Command is beginning recovery operations now. So that was then followed up with another one uh, which headed into Canadian airspace and so on. But uh, sticking with the Alaska story for a second, uh, this headline in Newsweek. Alaska governor fears airspace intrusions may be the new norm. Uh, and this is uh, Alaska governor uh, Mike Dunleavy saying, unlike other states, Alaska is truly on the front lines because of our close proximity to our neighbors. Uh, there's very little margin for error. Russia, uh, Russian territory is only a few miles away. Uh, we are the one state closest to the Korean Peninsula and China. Alaska is truly on the front lines and uh, not to be outdone. Uh, then Lisa 
uh, Murkowski uh, pushes zero tolerance for threats for Alaskan space. So she's uh, uh, Alaska's senator. And she's saying basically, you know, this is sovereign airspace. Uh, we can't have our sovereign sovereign integrity. Uh, uh, very much similar language to, to sort of Ukrainian uh, situation and so on. Uh, this was the Chinese uh, response, just for the record. Uh, the China side has repeatedly shared information and stated its position on the unintended entry of the unmanned Chinese civilian airship into U.S. airspace due to force majeure. Uh, the U.S. Congress's resolution is purely about scoring political points and dramatizing the whole uh, thing. China deplores it and uh, firmly opposes it. And this was uh, uh, because the U.S. Congress had uh, passed a resolution criticizing China for uh, their surveillance tactics in the United States. But look, uh, this statement also came out from the uh, Pentagon over the weekend, uh, for, at least from North American Aerospace Defense Command. Uh, let's just uh, zoom in on that a little bit. It says, with the cooperation of Federal Aviation Administration, North American Aerospace Defense uh, Command, NORAD, implemented a temporary flight restriction uh, airspace in central Montana on the 11th of February 2023 to ensure the safety of air traffic in the area during NORAD operations. The restriction has been lifted. NORAD detected a radar anomaly and sent fighter aircraft to investigate. Those aircraft did not identify any object to correlate to the radar hits. NORAD will continue to monitor the situation. So now not only are, do we have the mainstream press seriously talking about space aliens, but we have NORAD uh, having some kind of you know anomaly on the radar, scrambling jets on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, of course, that will generate headlines as well. Um, David, I just want to get your thoughts on this situation, and then I could ask Mark for comment as well. Well, firstly, right, Alaska's on the front line. So this is this is a this is a drumbeat. It's it's all urgent, it's all stressed, it's all we're on the front lines. The front line of what? Occasional weather balloons blowing over. Right? I mean it's it's very, very strange to be hiking up this level of fear and anxiety over, it would appear, something that's utterly trivial. Now, the second thing is, for those of us who have, been, have looked into the events surrounding 9-11, the, the prompt response of uh, fighter jets to radar anomalies is very encouraging because it didn't happen then. Um, and the whole unknown nature of what they shot down also is a bit puzzling because surely fighter pilots have eyeballs and have some idea before they shoot something down, what it is. I mean, that would be normal procedure, wouldn't it? You'd fly alongside and have a little look to make sure it wasn't, you know, something you don't want to be shooting down. So this, the, this all seems to be extremely strange. Yes, Mark, have you, have you got any thoughts? Not a whole lot. This one's not my bailiwick lately, but uh, David stole my thunder just a tad there. I was going to say essentially the same thing, that you would identify something before you would shoot it down. Um, I don't know if they'll eventually try and blame some of this on Russia coming across the, you know, the Bering Straits there. Uh, you know, maybe they're setting us up for that. Uh, you know, in, in conspiracy lore, there's been people predicting for years that the uh, some some agency of the government will act like there's going to be an alien invasion to uh, uh, galvanize the populace, to unify people behind a common threat. I'm sure that that's not what this is, but it, it, it's, it, bears, it bears at least a mention. 
I will we'll just have to see how this unfolds to see if that's not what it is. You know, some sort of uh, ever expanding uh, uh, specter of a so-called alien presence or alien invasion uh, for some sort of propaganda or, or uh, population control purposes. I, that's a, a far out assumption right now, but it, it bears mention because that's been floating around the internet for years. Well, indeed. Um, okay, uh, let's come back to the UK then. Uh, and uh, David, uh, who are the terrorists? Well, this is the question. Uh, it, it seems to be an ever-expanding uh, group of people. So here we have the Morning Star reporting, Home Office challenge to crack down on far-right extremism following a fascist protest, and never short at calling people fascist Morning Star, outside an asylum seeker hotel. Uh, they report a fascist protest outside an asylum seeker hotel in Scotland to spark calls for the Home Secretary to more to collect, crack down on far-right extremism. Scottish Green MSP Maggie Chapman has written a letter. Wow to Suella Braverman to express her concern that the demo organised by white nationalist group Patriotic Alternative in the Renfrewshire town of Erskine. So here we have uh, Maggie Chapman, MSP's um, tweet. She said, I've written to the Home Secretary regarding the threat posed by domestic extremism. The race, racist and fascist rally, so we're using the, the, the normal buzzwords slurs, in Erskine and Sunday was disgusting. Disgusting is also an interesting word. They always feel disgust. That's what Hitler felt about the Jews. I just point that out in the passing. Um, but I was heartened by those who stood up in solidarity with asylum seekers and against racism. This is the Scotland we want. So we're doing manipulation of the politics surrounding the huge influx of people into the country under the uh, cover of asylum seeking. Now, here we have the actual letter she sent uh, to Sarah Braverman, it starts, I am writing to you. Uh, and you'd always tell someone who's not very clever because they start writers by saying, I am writing, the one thing that's obvious. Uh, she said, I'm writing to you regarding the current assessment of domestic terror threats in Scotland and across the UK. And she goes on to talk about um, uh, far-right activists linked to banned neo-Nazi groups um, attended a rally organised by Patrick Alternative, uh, Patriotic Alternative in Erskine. Um, the rally took place next to a hotel accommodation that's been provided for asylum seekers and attendees claim, with attendees claiming, despite substantial opposition, that the asylum seekers were not welcome in the local community. So it's all about this protest. And as you're aware, there was a, a, a protest which turned violent in Liverpool um, surrounding uh, asylum seeking, uh, asylum seekers being uh, uh, housed in the local community. And there's been several protests in uh, the Republic of Ireland. So this is something that's, that's, gen that's, that's generally getting pushed back from local communities. It gets wider, however. So we have another MSP. Um, so this is uh, the Herald reporting. Uh, SMP MP um, urges Home Office to widen the focus of the terror strategy. Uh, so this is Kirsten Oswald. She said the PREVENT programme was too preoccupied with the possible Islamist Islamist threat um, and risk stigmatizing and marginalizing Muslim communities. Um, she wants uh, the program to take in anti-vaxxers, incels and followers of Trump supporting QAnon conspiracy theory. So we're talking about defining people who are opposed, because anti-vaxxer means someone who's opposed to compulsory vaccine mandates. So someone who's taking an entirely peaceful, entirely rational response 
standing against government policy, this MP wants to be designated a terrorist and uh, wants the prevent strategy to come and start to impact upon them. So I thought, well, I, I recognise that face. Um, Kirsten Oswald, where have I seen her recently? Oh, well, actually, she was at a protest in Glasgow, um, a protest in favour of trans rights. And here she's pictured standing in front of a sign that says, Decapitate TERFs. Uh, TERFs being people like Posey Parker, stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. And just in case anyone thinks that this is some sort of metaphor, there's a little drawn of a guillotine there next to it, just to be clear. Now, um, uh, this particular MP did, uh, did come out and say that she hadn't noticed the sign she was standing in front and she was appalled by it. So she did come out later and say this, this did not represent her views. But there was lots of photographs of her standing with violent signs uh, in a crowd that clearly were very radical and advocated violence and advocated violence against political opponents. I would have thought that would be closer to terrorism, but there we go. Um, going back to Maggie Chapman, here we see Maggie Chapman here um, standing up with, uh, speaking with, and um, standing next to and getting photographs taken, with trans activist, uh, a fine young man called Beth Douglas. Um, now, Beth Douglas then had to be suspended from the Scottish Green Party, of which she was a member, um, because of the violent... Um, uh, the, 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 the information he was putting out, tweets he was putting out were advocating violence. Um, so here we see one with him holding an axe and holding a knife. He says, I heard you, you all hate trans women, knives and axes, love from Glasgow. This was to intimidate Posey Parker and the thousand women who came out to listen to what was being said in George Square. So um, this is a bit worrying. And here's another one from, from Beth. Uh, if you don't, if you insist on the trans day of uh, visibility, and uh, we're going to beat you up for it. So, open advocation of violence. All these people who are saying that um, th their political opponents are literally terrorists and must be acted on by the state and controlled by the state and presumably tried and imprisoned by the state for what they believe, those same people are advocating or are very closely associated with those who are advocating political violence. Um, this seems strange. Is it an example of the iron law of woke projection? They always accuse you of the thing that they are themselves guilty of. Um, <clears throat> that's a question for, for a guest, uh, Dr. Bruce Scott, who's also been following this. Bruce, welcome. Well, uh, hello. It's good, it's good to be here, David. Yes, well, uh, it, it's straight out the gaslighting of domestic abuse uh, playbook. You know, Matt, this is Maggie Chapman, uh, well, and, and Kirsten Oswald, who, who, who back uh, masking children for eight hours a day and uh, who have, uh, you know, been supportive of the COVID policies, uh, which under Biderman's chart of coercion, you know, isolating people, monopolising people's perception through, through dodgy propaganda and applied psychology, uh, and uh, now, now they 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 have uh, been, uh, you know, turning the tables uh, and 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 saying that these protesters uh, outside Erskine Bridge, what 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 they miss out in the, on this, 
uh, protests in Erskine. There were local people there who are genuinely concerned, as there are throughout the UK with this, with large-scale immigration of, of migrants coming in, with no safety assessment, or you know, and uh, you know there have been incidents, and uh, but they miss all that, all out this, uh, you know, and are, are people not meant to be able to to be able to speak out? And of course, a domestic abuser like the like the like the mo that they are using uh, is coming out exactly, exactly that. If you say anything, you're racist or fascist. But, uh, you know, they, and they also miss out the fact that this left-wing group that was counter-protesting the patriotic alternative group, there was a, a, an attack by some of the, the wokists was foiled by the police. It's never mentioned this. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, it, the, the, another, another strand to this, is, it, there is a, a strand of anti-white racism going on in Scotland, I think. For example, the they, both Maggie Chapman and Kirsten Oswald are pushing this critical race theory, anti-racist education in schools. But it's based, it's on the basis of targeting little white boys and girls and saying that inside them, in their brains, based on a kind of very pseudoscientific and debunked model, saying that, that they have some, some racist psychopathology in them. And so it's going into schools and saying that you have, we have to intervene, and, you know, and that is abusive. That is a that is straight up abuse. So it's yeah, a, it's extremely worrying. Yeah, one of the things that I find uh, deeply concerning about this is where you've got a party in power using the or attempting to expand the reach of the state to close down people that they don't agree with. The, there was no suggestion that the people in Patriotic Alternative actually were breaking any laws. I, if we believe in free speech, we should believe in, free, in speech which, which, with which we disagree. We should be defending people's right to protest peacefully, even if we fundamentally disagree with what they're saying or their point of view. But this never seems to come into it. It's only used to paint political views that Maggie Chapman et al. don't agree with as being um, ultimately so toxic as to be uh, beneath contempt, as to be worthy of being banned, as to be worthy of having violent state action directed against the holders of those views simply for holding the views, not because of anything they've done. Um, and and this, is all of, this all increases the power of the state over how we think and how we speak. And this is, this is my concern about it. Do you, do you see that developing in Scotland? Yeah, I think it's... It, it, if you look at... Look, so my dog's barking in the background there. If you take the, the uh, Lithuanian-French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, he had a family who, who, who were killed by the Nazis. Uh, he talked about this in terms of the othering of the other, you know, demonising the other like this on, on, the, on, the, on the basis of very, of, of very little. And uh, it, it, in Scotland, it does seem to have that very totalitarian feel of uh, demonising and pathologising the other on the basis of nothing. It, in, you know, in, and Lebanon goes into this and says, this is highly, highly unethical. Uh, you know, it happened in the Nazis. It happened uh, in, in other totalitarian regimes, and uh, and so this 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 and, and this Kirsten Oswald thing about putting anti-vaxxers on onto the 
extremist list is straight out of the Soviet playbook uh, of uh, pathologizing dissidents that the, which they did in the Soviet Union. Uh, a guy called Vladimir Bukowski wrote a book about it. We spent 12 years in the psychiatric prisons in the, in the USSR. Uh, you know, the, 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 the direction of travel of this, it seems to be that they're going to paint anti-vaxxers as a public health threat. And therefore, as an extremist and or mentally ill. And indeed, you look at uh, Dr. Uh, Richard uh, Thomas Binder in, in Switzerland, who was arrested and put in a psychiatric hospital for spouting uh, supposedly anti-vax views. This is very worrying, I think, if it's happening in Scotland. Bruce, uh, thank you very much for that. We'll um, ask you to, to come back in uh, extra time and we'll explore these things in more detail. Till then, thank you very much. Okay, thanks, David. And we'll move on to uh, uh, the online safety bill here. Sajid Javid uh, uh, sent this out on Twitter uh, on Saturday. The devastating scale uh, children are accessing porno pornography online has been shown time and time again. It's causing incredible damage to their development and lives. These amendments uh, will help protect more children and honour our 2015 manifesto promise. So what's he talking about? Well, he and uh, I believe 40 or more than 40 other uh, Tory MPs have written to uh, the government to demand uh, amendments to the online safety bill as it's going through Parliament in order to force uh, porno pornography suppliers, companies to uh, require digital ID or digital uh, age verification before they um, access this content. Now, um, this is, a, again, a pretty cynical uh, effort to really bring in digital ID, as far as I can see, uh, because, of course, there are other uh, ways to deal with this problem. Uh, but I just wanted to make the point that uh, this is uh, being pushed forward to go into the legislation in the UK, but France is already implementing it. And it's interesting, they're calling it a pornography pass, uh, a bit like a vaccine pass, pornography passport or, or pornography pass. So uh, they have uh, launched a new uh, initiative to allegedly block access to pornography for minors. And David, uh, you know, this is uh, the, part of a larger agenda that we've seen this across very many aspects of our lives at the moment to bring digital ID in. There's very little public support for it. And uh, these types of emotive uh, headlines and emotive uh, topics are being used to try to generate that support. Yes, this is the case. Um, the, the, uh, it's, a, it's an example of problem, re reaction, solution, perhaps. It's trying to justify uh, ever more stringent government intervention in, in our lives, in our families, and how we think and what we say and what we do on a more and more minute level. And there has to be some something is pointed to something that will get, gather public support, protecting children being the most obvious one. Now, I would point out at the same time, this same government is introducing drag queen story time. It's introducing harmful sex ed that is sexualizing children. It's introducing them to every sort of sexual perversity imaginable in schools under the state curriculum for educating our young. So I'm not buying any of this motivation to protect the children. But of course, the public, the mums and dads out there who do wish to protect the children will react to it. That's why it's being done. 
if it was genuine, the first thing they would do is put their own house in order, and that they are manifestly failing to do. Indeed. Okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, where you pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please uh, do share any material you find on the various platforms. Now, David, uh, we're going to move on to tax. Uh, and uh, well, I seem to remember uh, several months ago, you discussing uh, the issue of tax and particularly increasing the tax burden on at the upper levels uh, of uh, the tax spectrum um, and suggesting that uh, if, you know, if the Scottish government or any other government uh, increased taxes too high, uh, that that would encourage people to leave. Uh, well, it looks like others agree because this is the uh, IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Uh, they've published an analysis of Scottish tax and benefit reforms. Um, and uh, well, here is a little bit from the press release. Uh, Tom Wernham, uh, a research economist at IFS and an author of the report said, the Scottish government have used devolved income tax and benefit policy to make the system more progressive as well as raise more revenue and fund public services. It goes on to say, uh, talking about high rate earners, with this group in particular, there's a risk that high, higher taxes will incentivize tax avoidance efforts uh, or even incentivize migrating across the border. And uh, well, I just thought that uh, seemed to echo uh, the concerns that you'd been expressing several months ago quite nicely. Yes, and this, and of course the, the bottom line has been that the tax take has been well below expectations and that the Scottish Government has been bailed out by the UK taxpayer once again because all of the extra, they put the rates up, right? They've, they've been able to, to say, oh, we've got the most progressive tax taxation system in Western Europe or whatever the happens to be. Uh, and they, they can guarantee that the supporters do not know that back in the 30s, progressive meant fascist. So they, they don't know that. They think progressive some sort of good thing because it, it comes from the word progress. So that, that must be good. But the pra in practice, what it means is they're, they're taking in less tax. Right? They're failing in the, in the very thing they set out to do, which is to gather money for all these uh, allegedly good works by the state. Um, and this also relates to uh, this, this article I have here in the Telegraph regarding Rishi Sunak's taxation uh, from Westminster. Uh, this is from John Monaghan, and it says, uh, its, its title is Rishi Sunak's tax hikes, hikes have a fundamental flaw. So he's saying that eight years he wrote uh, a piece for an online magazine, um, and he concluded that uh, fiddling with tax rates would not have any impact at all on total tax revenue. Uh, tax uh, penalises economic activity, and if the penalty is increased, activity lessens and tax avoidance increases. Uh, Laffer and his famous curve came in for derision when it was first pointed this out, but it's now generally accepted that there's a tax rate that will ma maximise the tax take. They continued, they said, eight years later, uh, I had a look at the results to see if it still held up. The UK's tax take is rock steady, uh, just lower than... Uh, the Norway's he was talking about earlier, uh, at around 34% of GDP. So whatever the individual tax rates have been set at in the interim, um, and it's a definition of madness to keep trying something that hasn't worked. So he's pointing out that basically we get 34% of GDP. The government can collect a maximum of 34% of GDP out of the UK society. That's all it's going to get. Right? They're kidding themselves if they think it's going to be more. 
And he, he, he finishes off, he said, the dynamic of why raising taxes lowers economic growth, bears repeating. Take uh, national insurance contributions and corporation tax. Increasing NIC places an extra cost on labour. When the NIC tax was imposed, one owner manager of a 50-person business, <clears throat> and this is the sort of business that generates real job, job growth, observed to me, quote, well, that puts paid to two extra people I was going to hire next month. The extra uh, national insurance contributions on the 50 employees already had had simply soaked up the money. Um, increasing corporation tax to 25% means companies will, again, have less money to grow their businesses and may re relocate both new and existing investments out of the UK. And we have here just a quick reminder of what the Laffer curve is. If you have 0% tax, you have zero tax revenue. If you have 100% tax, you have 0% tax revenue because who would pay that? Who would work to pay all the, all the revenue to, this, to the state? Somewhere in between, there's a tax revenue maximizing point. You go beyond that, then, then as the tax rate goes up, the actual tax total value brought in declines. And that's the lesson that it seems that neither the Holyrood nor the Westminster governments are really um, learning very quickly. A couple of other things on tax. BBC reports here, um, net zero targets may mean higher taxes. So here we've got um, an alleged economist who doesn't understand the Laffer curve, Lord Nicholas Stern, who was uh, an advisor to Tony Blair and to Boris Johnson. That was a clue. Um, and he, he said that, um, quote, we must have growth we must, and we must drive down emissions and it's investment in the new technologies that, that is going to get us there. I'm not arguing for the delaying investment in health and education. We have to pursue those at the same time. If we have to tax a little bit more, so be it. If we have to borrow a little bit more for the really tremendous invest investments, then we should do that. So tax, borrowing, it's all good. This is a sort of idiocy, economic illiteracy that is advising top politicians. It's, um, it ignores the reality of the fact that you can't tax more no matter what you do. And it ignores the fact that uh, borrowing is a big problem and the debt level is a big problem. Uh, they're, of course, trying to tax with, with stealth, because what do you do if you can't get any more, if you can't squeeze any more blood out of the stone? Well, you try to do it without the stone noticing. So the Telegraph, again, so a million more people are facing paying tax on savings. Um, this relates to the fact that there's a £1,000 tax-free allowance on interest from savings. Now the interest rates have gone up from basically 0 to 4%. People now have interest on their savings. And... Uh, the tax-free allowance has not been corrected for inflation. So it's more and more people are, are, are losing that benefit and are being taxed on their savings uh, as that's another stealth tax. But still, they can't get any more than the 34%. Now, Mike, headlines you never thought you'd read. Sunak's tax blunders prove it. Liz Truss was right all along. It is said that... If whatever, whatever politician leaves office, and no matter how you celebrate, you'll eventually, you'll eventually miss them because you'll be faced with the next one, which will be even worse. And, and I didn't know if that was going to be true of Liz Truss. I mean, how could it? But she's getting there. Um, the return of Liz Truss to the political fray has sparked a barrage of derision and outrage. The former prime minister has been widely criticised for a 4,000-word essay in the last weekend's Telegraph followed by an hour-long interview on Spectator TV. Now, 
so she's been criticised for speaking out because they're trying to silence the former Prime Minister as well. And um, what she's saying, she's saying that um, more tax doesn't help. Now, there is evidence for this, of course. She didn't make this particularly well when she was Prime Minister, but there's, there's much evidence. So here we have the declining level of corporation tax year by year. It's a slightly um, skewed scale. It only goes down to 18, not to zero. But still, it dropped from 30% to 19%, a substantial reduction in corporation tax rate. In the same period, the actual tax take went up from 31 to 62 billion, so it doubled, and it went up from 2.4% of GDP, GDP to 2.9% of GDP. So actually we got more tax take with a lower rate. And this was a point that should have been made more uh, clearly at the time, but this was the point underpinning Liz Truss's approach to taxation. Unfortunately, she didn't have an approach to cutting the size of the state, but you know, she was half right. Uh, in the Telegraph, she was writing a 4,000-word essay. I was brought down by the left-wing economic establishment. Um, and um, there's, there's a certain amount of sympathy you have to have because she's saying, I assumed upon entering Downing Street, my mandate would be respected how wrong I was. This is, this is quite an important point because increasingly, as our politicians and as democracy loses authority, as it's shown to be weak and and fraudulent and corrupt. Um, mandates mean less and less. Uh, Liz Trust didn't get a mandate from the mass electorate. She got she got it through a, a, a leadership election only within the Tory party. And then the Tory party themselves didn't even respect that. So we're seeing that the, the mandates don't mean as much as they used to. Um, and her comments also, um, she was talking about the instinctive view of the Treasury um, regarding the, the the economic orthodoxy, and they have essentially a pessimistic view of Britain. Uh, they viewed Brexit as damage limitation rather than uh, a once-in-a-generation opportunity, and essentially negative, small-minded, pessimistic views within the Treasury means that very little could be done. The Treasury was part of the problem, was the point she was making. And I think that particular narrative uh, may have legs. Okay, well... Uh, we'll we'll watch and see what happens. But uh, uh, are you really supporting Liz Truss here, David? Well, as I say, she was half right. We should be lowering taxes. We should also be cutting the size of the state. Um, the the idea that um, it's it's physically impossible to actually do the right thing in British government because the Treasury or other um, parts of the bureau, bureaucratic machine will stop you, I think is an interesting one. It also applies uh, across where Mark is, rather describes the experience of Donald Trump, I thought. OK, but uh, just to finish this segment off, I mean, was her, was her situation not, uh, not that she didn't have the uh, communication skills and the intellectual integrity, actually, to, 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 to explain what she was trying to do? Oh, yes, I would agree with that. Right? She, there was a complete failure of communication skills and there was a failure of bottle, right? because when the pressure came on, she had one chance and only one chance to draw a line in the sand and say, this is where we're going right? and we're going there or I'm off. Um, and she, she could and should have done that, but she did the weak thing. She tried to negotiate, she tried to placate, she tried to appease the forces in the Treasury 
And of course, the minute that started, she was toast. So yes, she 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 did fail, um, at least in the way she failed because of her own actions. But the but the headwinds she faced, I think, are real enough. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, move on then to health uh, and well, global health. Mark, uh, what's the latest on the World Health Organization and treaties and so on? Uh, this is a very important item, Mike. Um, the World Pandemic Treaty is finally rearing its head. And what we're seeing on the screen here, the first slide, is a, a, a screenshot of the actual WHO literature on this. It's dated February 1st of this year. And it mentions there the fourth meeting of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Body, the INB, as I'll refer to it often, to draft and negotiate a WHO convention agreement or other international instrument, which they call legally binding in most respects, on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response. That PPR is very common too. And the internet, the INB is comprised of representation from the WHO's 194 member states for the record, and they will negotiate this zero draft initial treaty, this initial treaty draft called the zero draft at its fourth INB meeting. And that's scheduled to start February 27th. Take note of that, February 27th, and it's going to be a series of meetings of the INB, as I understand it. Now, the next slide uh, I'll briefly mention is from Health Policy Watch, and this is typical of what's going on, Mike. The So far, as of this reading, as of today's UK column show, I've seen little to nothing, probably nothing, as far as I can tell, from the mass media cartel on this all-important and in many ways threatening WHO pandemic treaty. All they're talking about, as this Health Policy Watch article states here, is, for example, the headline here, pandemic treaty zero draft is out, proposes that the WHO gets 20% of all pandemic products to ensure equity. More of these globalese buzzwords, of course. Now, what they're talking about there is the only concern, like with the Nature Journal, nature.com, Health Policy Watch, and other academic journals, think tanks, institutes, NGOs, things like that. And that's the only people talking about this. The news organizations are generally silent. All they're talking about is, well, the poorer countries during the pandemic of COVID-19, they didn't get their fair share of vaccines. So this time around, the WHO will control more pandemic resources. And these poorer countries, lucky them, will get more vaccines and more treatment, um, and they won't be left out. Mark, just so, to, just uh, sorry, just to just to interrupt one second. They didn't get their fair share of uh, jabs and vaccines, but they also didn't get their fair share of the deaths either. It seems. Uh, correct, but uh, that doesn't seem to compute with the uh, world managers of our health system. Uh, ex exactly, um, uh, they're to be lauded maybe for not getting all those vaxes uh, or the, all those jabs. Rather, I don't know that it was intentional that they resisted them but they didn't get them and uh, they're better off for it. But moving on, there's a bit to cut through, get out your machetes as they say, uh, but this is all very important stuff. Um, from the from the 32 page uh, treaty draft itself, and I'll, I'll note that the, um, the uh, treaty, uh, par pardon me just a moment, it has, well, we'll, we'll come back to that. Anyway, um, we're going on with this. 
uh, background methodology and approach from page one of the 32-page treaty draft. It's 32 pages. It's got 38 articles, by the way, and seven chapters or eight chapters, I believe it is. I'll look that up. In recognition of the catastrophic failure of the international community in showing solidarity and equity in response to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, the World Health Assembly convened a second special session in December of 2021, where it established the INB. That's where the intergovernmental negotiating, negotiating body came from, open to all member states, that's, that's 194, and associate members, uh, to draft and negotiate a WHO convention, agreement, or other international instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response with a view to its adoption under Article 19 or under other provisions of the WHO constitution as may be deemed appropriate by the INB. And it describes here what Article 19 is. Article 19 of the WHO constitution provides the World Health Assembly with the authority to adopt conventions or agreements on any matter within the WHO's competence. Uh, moving on to the next slide. The WHO Constitution, for the record, was adopted by the International Health Conference held in New York from June 19th to, June 20, to July 22nd, 1946, and signed on 22 July 1946 by the representatives of 61 states. And this WHO Constitution entered into force on the 7th of April, 1948. Later amendments were incorporated, while Article 19 of the WHO Constitution provides scope to address all the matters under the competence of the WHO. Here it describes Article 21. Article 21 of the WHO Constitution empowers WHO and member states to address specific subject matters that require globally harmonized processes and regular updates without fragmenting regulatory jurisdictional reach and application. Note the language there. No fragmenting of regulatory jurisdictional reach and application. They want a very consolidated approach here. And this is all in the manner that it goes, it, that all of this mitigates against national sovereignty and national autonomy. Uh, moving on, <clears throat> in furtherance of the above mandate, the INB, established a process and systematic approach for its work and agreed at its second meeting that the instrument should be legally binding and contain both legally binding as well as non-legally binding elements. That's a little bit convoluted, but that's their wording. In that regard, the IMB identified Article 19 of the WHO Constitution as the comprehensive provision under which the instrument should be adopted without prejudice to also considering as work progressed, the suitability of Article 21 and requested the Bureau to develop and present to the INB a conceptual zero draft of the instrument referred to herein as WHO CA plus for discussion. And this is just all the, uh, the evolution and the development of this thing. Now we're getting into more um, concise matters. These are key points from the 49-point preamble, the, the, the zero draft, the initial draft of the treaty, has 49 points in its preamble. Um, number one and two are potentially at odds and appear contradictory. Notice number one, reaffirming the principle of sovereignty of states' parties in addressing public health matters, notably public prevention, preparedness, response, and health systems recovery. But then listen to number two, 
recognizing the critical role of international cooperation and obligations for states to act in accordance with international law, including to respect, protect, and promote human rights. So um, number one says, recognizing the principle of sovereignty. Number two then turns it around and says, recognizing the critical role of international co-op and obligations for states to act in accordance with international law. Kind of an Orwellian uh, Texas two-step there, you might say. Uh, Giveth, taketh away. And um, there's another thing that's worth mentioning. Uh, this isn't in the uh, slides, but I'll mention this real briefly. This is very similar to the way any UN-related document works. The shifty language that we just read that were two planks out of the 49 planks in the proposed treaty is very similar to the UN Convention on Civil and Political Rights. Now listen to Article 9 of that UN Convention. No one shall be deprived of his liberty except on such grounds and in accordance with such procedure as are established by law. And this is very common throughout uh, all sorts of UN conventions and even the UN Charter itself. And the WHO, of course, is the health arm of the UN. It's full of, yeah, you have rights unless we say you don't. Well, and the rights you do have, we grant you. So therefore, they're revocable. So the WHO initial zero draft treaty is no different. Now, moving on, uh, cutting through the thicket a little bit more. Uh, recognizing the central role of the WHO as the directing and coordinating authority on the international health on international health work in pandemic prevention, preparedness, response, and recovery of health systems, and in convening and generating scientific evidence, and more generally, fostering multilateral cooperation in global health governance. So there, the WHO is the uh, is assuming the central role here in directing and coordinating this whole thing. And it adds there, recognizing that the international spread of disease is a global threat with serious consequences for public health, human lives, livelihoods, societies, and economies that calls for the widest possible international cooperation and participation of all countries and relevant stakeholders in an effective, coordinated, appropriate, and comprehensive international response. Again, even more language talking about consolidation and moving away from national autonomy in, in determining whether to wear masks and determining uh, public health policy in upholding medical choice. None of that is even mentioned. And uh, we're moving on here to uh, a little bit more, and uh, maybe you guys would want to offer some observations. We're, we're cutting through this recognizing that because the threat of pandemics is a reality and that pandemics have catastrophic health, social, economic, political consequences, and especially for persons in vulnerable situations, and here's the emphasis here, pandemic prevention, preparedness, response, and recovery of health systems must be systematically integrated into a whole of government and whole of society approach to ensure adequate political commitment resourcing and attention across sectors and thereby break the cycle of panic and neglect. So they just go on uh, to talk more about this. Um, we can probably skip that one there because it's just more about whole of government and whole of society approaches. It keeps uh, emphasizing that. We can move on to the next one. <clears throat> 
And this is more from the preamble. Whenever there's numbers there, they're from the preamble. And some of this is from the body of the uh, Zero Draft Treaty. But here's more of the 49 points from the preamble. Recognizing the importance of working synergistically with other relevant areas under a one health approach. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll abbreviate these things a little bit. That's number 24 in the preamble. Number 26 then says, reaffirming the importance of a one health approach and the need for synergies between multispectral and cross-spectral collaboration at a national, regional, and international level to safeguard human health, detect and prevent health threats at the animal and human interface, et cetera. <clears throat> now that, that refers to the one health approach about which I just posted an article on the uh, UK Column website. And the One Health approach, as I've discussed recently on this show, is about demoting humanity in the, in the natural world and putting them on the same level as plant life and animal life. And that's been pushed by The Lancet, the UK-based medical journal, among other sources. And as we've surmised, uh, that sounds uh, very much like uh, they want to treat people more on the level of livestock and uh, just globally manage the, uh, the health system without regards to individual rights and uh, putting us, uh, again, on the same level as the rest of the uh, animal kingdom and, and plant life and the ecosystems. So um, there's a lot going on here, um, reorienting uh, the, the uh, view of mankind and, and putting this treaty forward. And uh, you guys have anything to add? We're, we're just about through. Um, this description of some of the key elements of the zero draft. Do you have any counterpoint or observations? Uh, yes, but I think we'll keep uh, keep it for extra, Mark, because uh, I've actually because it's going to start a long conversation. So we'll keep uh, a little bit of this for extra. Go, head on through the the final two points here, uh, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. There's just a little bit more here, uh, and this is just uh, a tiny smattering of what's in the. 32 pages, 49-point preamble, 38 articles, and so on. Or Yeah, 38 articles, and I, I believe eight chapters. Um, anyway, uh, looking at this next slide, it, this is more uh, two more points from the preamble. Recognizing that health is a precondition for and an outcome and indicator of the social, economic, and environmental dimensions of sustainable development and the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So not only is this connected to the mankind demoting one health meme or, or concept, but this is also very much connected to the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the Sustainable Development Goals. So uh, this fits into the larger picture as we would have predicted. Uh, and then the final point that I pulled out of the preamble, recognizing that pandemics have a disproportionately heavy impact on frontline workers notably health workers, the poor, and persons in vulnerable situations with repercussions on health and development gains, in particular in developing countries, thus hampering the achievement of universal health coverage and the sustainable development goals with their shared commitment to leave no one behind. So this, in their own words, spells out just how potentially totalitarian and far-reaching and consolidating this whole thing is. And uh, the Brownstone Institute chimed in and made some very adroit uh, observations, thanks to Alex Thompson for sending this to me. Um, 
David Bell of the Brownstone Institute uh, wrote this, Amendments to WHO's International Health Regulations, an annotated guide. And this is very important what he put here. Uh, take, keep in mind that Mr. Bell used to work for the WHO, which I'll describe here in a moment. He wrote this in his article. The COVID skeptic world has been claiming the WHO plans to become some sort of global autocrat, autocratic government removing national sovereignty and replacing it with a totalitarian health state. The near complete absence of interest by mainstream media would suggest to the rational observer that this is yet another conspiracy theory from the disaffected French. But, and here's my writing, Mr. Bell added, however, and he, he's a former uh, um, medical representative with the WHO himself. He added, however, that in recent decades, the WHO has involved to where now most funding is directed to specified uses, largely provided by private and corporate interests. The priorities of the WHO have evolved accordingly, moving away from community-centered care to a more vertical, commodity-based approach following the self-interest of these funders. Those private interests include the World Economic Forum and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as the Gavi Vaccine Alliance and the Wellcome Trust, even while the World Bank and the G20 have elbowed their way in. So here we have a former medical officer with the WHO saying, well, maybe the conspiracists, quote unquote, aren't so far off after all because of the way the WHO has changed over the years. But as I pointed out, uh, the WHO is part of the UN and the way UN documents are worded and the way the whole system is set up, even without the private funding, uh, this is still a very untrustworthy uh, arrangement. Therefore, any treaty that comes out of it um, really ought to be fully resisted and exposed. Yes. So uh, that should do it for now at this point. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. Uh, David, any thoughts briefly? Well, I would just encourage people to, to look at um, Mark's article because it brings forward really important points and makes connections between uh, the, the World Health Organization and certain other um, accepted principles of, uh, of, of global governance and global health, including and particularly the policy on abortion apology and the policy on population and population control. So it's, it's bringing, Mark's bringing these threads together. I think it's a very interesting article and uh, I would encourage people to look it out. Okay, thank you. Uh, now let's uh, move to China and, well, particularly what's been going on in the UK with respect to China. So uh, here's Daily Express. Fury is Chinese governor of region where Uyghur Muslims are persecuted uh, to visit UK in days. Uh, Tory MPs have lashed out at the possibility uh, of uh, uh, this uh, uh, governor of, the, of Xinjiang visiting uh, next week. Uh, well, the government is uh, very keen to make the point. Uh, this is Leo Doherty, the uh, Minister of State for Europe, uh, very keen to make the point that he has not been invited by the UK government or the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Uh, and we have no confirmation, in fact, that he will travel. But in the meantime, over the weekend, Ian Duncan Smith was uh, on the Radio 4 uh, today, I think on Saturday morning. Uh, and this is what he was uh, pushing as hard as he could. Uh, there's a, a, an attempt to get uh, a private prosecution against this uh, Chinese governor, uh, which the attorney general has, has uh, been written to and has then had to approve. Uh, I would uh, call on the, the attorney to think very carefully about uh, allowing that private prosecution to come through, in which case, if this man lands, he will be detained 
pending prosecutions considering crimes against humanity, which the UN has said China has been guilty of. Have they? We'll see in a second. Uh, but uh, this person would be traveling on a diplomatic passport, but apparently uh, this would not uh, worry uh, the UK authorities at all. Uh, Duncan Smith went on to say, yes, I do want him to be arrested. Now, of course, there's a lot of controversy over the visit of uh, Ms. Bachelet to China last year. Uh, I think it was the uh, 1st of June uh, it was Vanessa Bailey's report on this. Uh, if you want to go back to, uh, to have a look at the UK column news to see how we covered it at the time. Um, but David, uh, no matter, the, the thing that concerns me about this is that we're starting to see, if we take into account the, the whole Chinese balloon farrago, but we're, with, it, with Xinjiang and, and the way that the politics is being played in the UK as well, we're starting to see the same type of uh, buildup of pressure, political pressure in the country to, to, to build ourselves a new enemy. Uh, and it, Britain perhaps has been uh, criticized, particularly by the Americans, for being quite soft on China in the last uh, number of years. But, but a lot of the rhetoric that's building up here reminds me very much of, uh, of Integrity Initiative. And part of the problem is, of course, you can't make any genuine criticism, or at least it's very hard to, 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 to get any objective criticism of China um, in, in the, the light of this type of rhetoric. Yes, getting getting some clarity on this is very difficult. I mean, we know what China was. We know what the Chinese Communist Party were because you know we've we've seen the accounts. We've seen the accounts of people who went in for reframing, reprogramming, um, and um, had their means of seeing the world very brutally changed via a consistent psychological attack as well as physical torture and deprivation. It was the psychological torture that stood out. Now, against that, what are they now? Well, we know our own government's using psychological methods against us. So the, the clear blue water between us and, and, and red China that might have been visible in, say, in the 1950s, is, is not so clear now. Um, they've become freer, we've become less free. Uh, so We've, we've still got um, a very authoritarian regime, but we've ourselves become governed by an almost equally authoritarian regime. Um, so as we look at this, we're trying to decide what China actually is. It's very difficult because it's moving and it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite opaque and uh, getting, um, shall we say, uh, genuinely independent voices is is very difficult. Um, meanwhile, in Britain, it's becoming also difficult to be a genuinely independent voice. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, just just quickly mention, uh, Patrick covered extensively on Friday's uh, programme uh, Seymour Hersh's uh, uh, report on the uh, blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline. If anybody hasn't read this article yet, I strongly recommend you do. Uh, I'll be interested to, to see if you've got any thoughts on this in a second, but I just wanted to mention China's uh, response to it because uh, this is uh, Mao Ning, the Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman, saying, if Hirsch is telling the truth, uh, what he revealed is clearly unacceptable and must be answered for. The US owes the world a responsible explanation. Well, so far, the only responsible explanation we're getting from uh, the United States, David, is, uh, well, Hirsch is talking nonsense, and well, we're talking about a very uh, significant journalistic voice. 
We are, and I mean, it's not impossible that Hirsch is talking nonsense, but um, it's from the outset, from the time when it happened and a, and a, and a senior well-connected Polish MEP tweeted, thank you, USA, it did look like it was a Western operation. Certainly couldn't be a Russian operation. That would make no sense whatsoever. So somebody blew it up. It wasn't accidental. Uh, because it was multiple type, multiple pipelines at the same time. So who was it? Well, you've not got many candidates. United States or perhaps Britain or perhaps another NATO country, Germany, probably unlikely they were getting the gas. Poland, unlikely, I, th I think. You know, there are simply not many candidates. So because of the situation, the, the, the view that it's just nonsensical I don't think that's enough. I think the I think it's there's there's too much at least circumstantial evidence suggesting that this article may be may be correct to simply have it dismissed in this way with any uh, with any sense of confidence uh, that the dismissal's correct. I think um, there needs to be some form of more <clears throat> open uh, inquiry into into exactly what the United States involvement was. Yeah, and uh, and indeed uh, whether Britain had any involvement in it uh, as well. Uh, now, uh, yesterday uh, on the BBC on Laura Kunzberg's programme, uh, she was speaking to the Polish president uh, and, uh, well, they were discussing the issue of fighter jets because, of course, uh, as we know, Zelensky uh, was in the UK last week to beg for fighter jets for Ukraine. Um, and the question is, would uh, Poland be supplying fighter jets Unilaterally, let's have a quick listen to what he said. We think that this requires a decision by the Allies anyway, which means that we have to make a joint decision. Also, due to the fact that there is a very serious need for maintenance of F-16s if they were to be deployed somewhere, it is not only about the jets, you also need maintenance and technical background, technical servicing and so on and so forth. So it is not enough just to send a few planes, a few jets. And a problem that we are facing, at least in Poland, is as follows. We have such jets, but they are fewer than 50. So, as a matter of fact, this is our only stock of jets that we have. This poses a serious problem if we donate even a small part of them anywhere, because I don't hesitate to say we have not enough of these jets. We would need many more of them. A decision today to donate any kind of jets, any F-16s, to donate them outside Poland, is a very serious decision, and it's not an easy one for us to take. So a couple of things that I thought were interesting there. First of all, that's the first time I've heard any kind of political acknowledgement or recognition of the support, engineering and, and backroom support that any uh, giving of jets or even tanks to Ukraine would actually require and therefore would need Western boots on the ground, which is a potential escalation. Um, so that's one point. Uh, but the other point that he was very much making was, of course, they don't have enough to be giving them away. Uh, and so uh, the Telegraph here uh, reporting that uh, British weapons could be made in Ukraine. So uh, this is the defense industry hoping that they can get uh, their foot in the door to help resolve this problem uh, by actually setting up factories in Ukraine. This just, it just gets more and more nuts. But anyway, uh, so the British defense firms 
wanting to enter into joint ventures with your, uh, Ukrainian defense companies to set up factories in Ukraine for licensed production of NATO arms and armaments. Uh, and the, the Telegraph saying the deal, quotes, is likely to be seen as a significant strengthening of Britain's relationship with Ukraine. Uh, so defense executives have been traveling to Ukraine with a view to setting up these joint ventures. Um, and uh, well, there we go, David. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, uh, but it seems to me that uh, perhaps setting up factories to build arms and armaments in a, a country which is an active war zone isn't probably the most sensible thing to do. And in a country where a good part of the population's actually siding with the, the 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 nation that you're ostensibly fighting, is that not a an absolute guarantee of sensitive military technology finding its way into the hands of the Russians? Uh, could could be. There are many many questions to be asked, uh, but there doesn't seem to be terribly much uh, rational thinking. Uh, anywhere in this whole progress program. But anyway, uh, let's move on to uh, the earthquake zone in Syria. Uh, and uh, this is Syrian foreign minister. Now, he, these aren't specifically his words, but they came from the uh, foreign ministry. So I'm, I'm attributing to him. He is saying, uh, Syria is calling on all countries and international organizations that have supported the Syrian people in its trials and tribulations caused by the devastating earthquake and in its ongoing fight against terrorism to demand the removal of the inhumane and illegal blockade that was imposed on Syrian people unconditionally uh, without any conditions. So uh, if you want to know more about what the implications or the, the impact that this earthquake has had on Syria, Vanessa Bealey covered it uh, very well on Friday's programme. Do watch that. But of course, he's calling for sanctions to be lifted. And as Vanessa reported it on Friday, in the United States at least, uh, they're paying lip service to the idea uh, of uh, disaster relief efforts uh, being given, some kind of uh, lifting of sanctions, at least uh, to provide uh, for money to go to Syria to provide for disaster relief uh, with respect to the earthquake. But Andrew Mitchell, who of course is a foreign aid minister, uh, was on with uh, uh, Laura Kunzberg on s Sunday. Uh, he wasn't quite so sure about the lifting of sanctions. Just listen to this. But let me be clear, what Britain did was to get aid to the White Helmets, who were the civil defence group during the war in Syria. Mm -hmm. They were the first responders pulling people out from under the rubble. And we got money through to them so that they could uh, provide for support, put petrol in their cars and, and get into action. And Britain was but doing I, that right at the beginning. But I know that you follow this issue very closely for many years. Is the way that President Assad is behaving costing life? Well, it's, it's too early to say because the significant support is coming through the UN there. And as I say, that is well coordinated. And the UN is in Damascus. The UN is able to deal with the Syrian authorities. Mm -hmm. And my information is so far that is working comparatively well. What about sanctions? Because Syria has been under tough sanctions for a long time because of President Assad's activities. America has said, hold off some of the sanctions for now to help get relief in. Is the UK going to do that too? Well, we will do everything we can to ensure that aid gets through to the people who are suffering. Well, the, 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 the sanctions affect, for example, the ability to get money into the area. And, and we are finding ways all the time to achieve that successfully.
but would it be easier if you re relax the sanctions? Because the United States has said they will ease off some sanctions. Is the UK going to follow that example? Well, sp specifically here, where sanctions would hold us back in any way, we would seek to have them lifted. But at the moment, we are able to get what we want through, and that's the key thing. Still, we're still at the stage where people are being pulled out of the rubble, as we've seen British firefighters pulling them out uh, in Turkey, and that is the key thing we have to do at the but moment. But you may ease them as, t as time goes on, you're suggesting, if, for if these specific reasons, if needed. Okay. If necessary, we'll push for that. In other words, David, no. Yeah, not, not until it's too late. And this, this um, reference to the way Assad is behaving, it's always without specifics. I find this very puzzling. You know, we're told constantly by the BBC how bad a man Assad is and how, how horrible he is to his people. But there's never really anything specifically held. Uh, apart, I mean, apart from saying there's a war going on and there's, you know, people are getting hurt in the war, which, yes. But apart from that, it seems to be very information light. If he's as bad as all that, um, where, are the, where are the details? Uh, they're not to be found uh, from any British uh, commentator or British government uh, representative. Uh, right, OK, let's come back to health then. And uh, Mark, uh, what is uh, going on with respect to denialism and, and its impact on uh, public health? <laughs> well, one of the things, Mike, is the terminology. Uh, now we have denialism. It's become an ism, uh, election denier, you know, uh, you deny that COVID-19 is a threatening disease. You, you deny the efficacy of the savior vaccines, our salvation from Pfizer. Um, now the Hill, this Capitol Hill uh, newspaper in D.C., um, has this headline, denialism is seeping into legislation and undermining public health. And I don't have all the details of the article right in front of me. There was enough to deal with the initial treaty draft for the pandemic treaty. But what this article was essentially about is that it's not just fringe members of society and alternative media people, you might say, that are that are doubting this whole juggernaut of COVID-19. Oh no, now it's state representatives, it's politicians at the state levels, and their denialism, not just assorted fringe individuals, but actually people elected to office, their denialism is seeping into legislation and undermining public health. And what the article seems to be getting at is that this will encourage more local and state autonomy on public health policy and medical choice medical choice within the US and that tends to mitigate against the idea of creating a one size fits all pandemic treaty you know it, it, like i described earlier uh, the development of the pandemic treaty uh, points from the 49 point preamble that i read it all points toward a consolidated, one health, one world point of view, all allopathic medicine, nothing naturopathic, no alternative modalities. And so if denialism is seeping into legislation, therefore public policy, this, this is a threat to the whole uh, regime for that treaty. So that's why that headline from The Hill was important. Um, there's some others that I picked up. I don't need to go into a lot of detail. This one is from CNN, everybody's favorite news agency in the U.S. Could you still have COVID-19 if you have symptoms but test negative and medical analyst weighs in? Well, this is more of this other propaganda that's going on besides what I just read. 
where COVID is now uh, insinuated in everything. If you test positive and have no symptoms, you have COVID. If you test negative, but you have some sort of symptoms, sniffles, whatever, maybe a bit of a cough, well, you have COVID. And I've read a lot of articles lately where if you have heart issues, it could very well be COVID and all sorts of other bodily uh, uh, problems, illnesses, infirmities, uh, everything is somehow, some way, directly and indirectly being connected with COVID. So uh, that would uh, that would tend to feed the treaty regime. You know, the idea that COVID could be anywhere or could somehow be connected to a m massive variety of health problems. And yet at the same time, uh, moving on, uh, we're seeing some other headlines, and, and I'd like to get you guys' take on this. This next slide, the U.S. House passes a bill to end COVID vaccine requirement for foreign air travelers. And then let's move on to the next one after that. President Biden to end COVID-19 emergencies, but not until May 11th of this year, they're saying. And then the last, the last slide, get this one. The state of Georgia moves to permanently ban COVID vaccine mandates. Get that, permanently ban COVID vaccine mandates for students and public health, excuse me, and public sector workers as U.S. cases continue to fall. So it seems like as they're building a, uh, you know, putting together the building blocks for a world pandemic treaty, even President Biden for some, for some reason, which to me seems a little, a little bit inexplicable right now, he wants to end the COVID-19 emergencies. The House is, again, U.S. House wants to pass the bill to end the vaccine requirement for foreign air travelers. And what I just read about the state of Georgia, uh, it seems like as the treaty is being developed, the urgency of COVID is arguably less and less. I'm not sure where Biden is going with what he's saying. Uh, many of us are surprised, of course, that Biden would even propose such a thing. But uh, what's you guys' take on this? It seems like we're getting all these mixed signals and it, it'd be nice to hear what you, uh, what, what you have to say about this. David, any thoughts? Well, it just seems a little bit like interest rate policy to me. You know, in order to have... <laughs> Um, a response that has an impact, you have to you have to turn off the previous response. You have to normalise interest rates in order to drop them to zero again at the next recession. Um, so I just wonder if it's a little bit like that. In order to have the major impact of of announcing um, new restrictions, you first have to remove the old ones. Yeah, that's quite that possible. Very well could am be, I being too be... am I being too cynical? No, I. I... That crossed my mind. It could be a polarity thing. Uh, you, the, the, the need for a treaty and the impact of a new pandemic would be greater if the old narrative were toned way down. Although I think the state of Georgia's uh, individual moves are a good thing. Um, maybe that's a little bit of a separate matter. And they're worried about uh, new legislation um, having denialism in it and being very skeptical of the whole COVID regime. But, but nevertheless, I think that's a very valid consideration and, and that bears a very uh, close watch as we as we watch starting February 27th, as we watch the zero draft treaty uh, begin to be debated and as they move forward on this. But I, I appreciate what you're saying. I don't think it's overly cynical. I think it's a logical thing to look out for. Uh, 
Can you okay. talk, Mike? Or? No, that's fine. Thank you, Mark. We'll uh, we'll move on. Uh, David, uh, last story here. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, and uh, well, the trans issue continues to cause our problems. The trans issue does, and it's all complicated. And I thought, um, how will I summarise this quickly? And I came across this wonderful video uh, by a Scottish political commentator. Um, I am curious, and uh, I thought I couldn't possibly do it better than just playing this little clip. 24 events occur in real time. Scotland's first minister certainly under a lot of pressure. A crisis is about to explode. Snap bang in the middle of a huge round. My comments about her, uh, the, the person being a rapist sends to Cordonville Women's Prison. This person was described in court as preying on vulnerable women. The threat to women, they are not. The question at hand is not whether this rapist should serve a sentence for rape. It's whether this individual is a man or a woman, and therefore which prison he or she goes into. So what is your answer? Is this individual a man or a woman? The First Minister was asked this question today at First Minister's Question Time. She gave the very confusing answer. At the last count, the First Minister had refused 12 times to see if Isla Bryson is a man or a woman. A man or a woman. This individual is a rapist. That is ah. the most important thing. You regard Isla Bryson as a she woman. Herself as a woman. I think you just referred to Isla Bryson using the word her. You, I, I can't remember. I'll it's take your word for it. it. Well, like fine. Look. Slip. Yeah. My question is: Are all trans Look. women women? This you haven't is, answered that question. Well, that's not the point that we're dealing with that's here. The question Look, Trans women are. <laughs> this case clearly demonstrates, I think, the concerns raised by her opponents have a good deal of basis in reality. There was a rally outside the Parliament saying that you're a destroyer of women's rights. I mean, have you listened enough to, to women who don't agree with you on the, the reform yeah, of the I've, gender? I've listened, I've listened a lot. You said that some of the opponents are transphobic, misogynistic, homophobic, maybe racist as well. Who are you talking about? Where, where have you seen these these things? Where, where is this a fact? Her popularity, along with the SNP's, has fallen. Support for the SNP is at its lowest uh, for five years. We are running out of time. Get out of there, Jack. And that's what it's been like in Scotland. Um, We've been introduced to the fact that there are now three genders in Scotland, man, woman, and rapist. Um, and that what we have is a thing called Schrodinger's rapist. It could be a man, it could be a woman, but until Nicola Sturgeon actually examines the situation closely, uh, which she's far too busy to do, uh, we can't possibly know. Okay, well, what, okay. So, so <laughs> Schrodinger's, yeah, okay, very good. Uh, what, what else has been going on with her, though, with respect to uh, green policies? Well, I mean, the, we've had several things happening. We've had a, a, a disastrous plan to roll out a, a bottle return scheme that seems to be failing now as well. Um, we've announced, we've had announcements from the SNP that they're guaranteed to duel the A9, which is the main road to Inverness, with a, with a very high death toll because in part, due to the nature of the road, it goes from dual carriageway to single carriageway and you're never quite sure what you're on and, and there's a lot of head-on collisions and, and fatalities on the road. Um, that's now the promise to duel that by 
2025 has now been confirmed as being missed. So there's a lot of things not going ter terribly well. But this, it's the it's the women's rights and trans issue that's been playing particularly badly. We've seen 30,000 people leave the SNP in the last little while. And um, one of the areas to gain support from was the Muslim community, uh, particularly in and around Glasgow. And uh, here we see they've lost that as well. So we've got the Muslim Council withdraws support from Nicola Sturgeon's disastrous SNP and Green government. Um, they say they're going down the wrong path. Um, they joined the Indian Council for Scotland in abandoning the SNP Green government. Um, the chair, Mr. Wasif Ahmad, said uh, morale is an all-time law, claiming civil liberties uh, have been taken away by social policies with the latest gender reform bill seemingly being the final straw. We are an all-time moral law with the SNP Green Coalition government. Since Nicola Sturgeon has become First Minister, the economy has been a disaster in Scotland. Business confidence is also at an all-time low. So you see that this is a community that, it was one of the communities that the SNP captured. So the SNP managed to get on board um, hugely disproportionately. Um, and it was part of the of the um, alliance that they built up with in Scotland. So there would be there was the traditional SNP vote. There was a, a, the left wing and woke vote. They captured a, a great deal of that. There was the second generation Irish um, Irish Catholic emigrant emigrant vote. They captured that from the Labour Party, who had previously held it, and there was the Muslim vote within Glasgow in particular, they captured that. So these elements of the vote, which, which took them in a divided country with four major parties all taking substantial amounts of the vote, this took them over the, over the top in terms of winning seats. This coalition is starting to fracture now, and we see that the, the, the Muslims are looking at this and saying, well, it's, it's just a disaster. We don't want any part of this. So I think it is going really quite badly for her. Um, no movements yet to get rid of her, but it can, it can only be a matter of time. Yes, okay, thank you. Well, look, we're absolutely out of time ourselves. Uh, so we're just gonna end with this. Uh, this uh, has been doing the rounds on Twitter, uh, but also all the way through the mainstream press. Asteroid SAR-2667, about a meter in diameter, uh, uh, was expected to fall near the French city of Le Havre at uh, 0259 UTC. I drove uh, to a photogenic spot close to home in the south of the Netherlands, captured just as the sky cleared. Uh, I'm going to say the main, it's, it's all over the mainstream press, clearly fake news. This is obviously a Chinese balloon. It's been shot down uh, by uh, the uh, Europeans in some way. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's obviously fake news, but we'll talk more about that in extra in a couple of minutes. Uh, along with uh, a number of other topics. I want to say thank you to David and to Mark and to Bruce for joining us today. Uh, stick around if you're a UK column member on the, on the members live stream for extra. Otherwise, we'll see you 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday. Bye-bye.